It's Thursday-ish. Do you know where your monsters are? Welcome to Monster Kid Radio, everybody. This is the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and this is episode 454 of the podcast. The song that you're hearing right now is the song Escape from Havana. It's from the Detroit, Michigan band House of Man, and it's from their album It Came from the basement. You can find them at houseofman.bandcamp.com. Check them out. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you when you're done listening to this episode of the podcast. This is week three. Week three. Week three times I'm going to say that. It's the Satanic Rites of January. This is the third week of our theme month this month here on the show. And the movie that we're doing this week is the movie that inspired the whole thing. It's a Hammer film. It's a Christopher Lee Peter Cushing joint. It is the Satanic Rites of Dracula. And I'm talking about it with friend of the show, Alistair Hughes. Alistair Hughes is the man behind the incredibly cool book, Info Gothic. Talk a little bit about that later on in the show, I'm sure. And yeah, there will be a link in the show notes for you to buy it from Amazon using our Amazon affiliate link. Al's a great guy. I waited way too long to talk to him about this movie or any movie really in general. I love chatting it up with him and not just because he's like in the future time zone wise. So he can kind of give me a heads up about what's coming, but he's just fun to talk to. And I love talking with everybody here on the show. You know how it goes. Get a couple of monster kids talking and we just can't shut up, but I'm going to shut up because we've got a few other things to get to first, like Professor Frenzy's bedtime story and Kenny's look at famous monsters of Filmland. We're going to get to that here in a second, but first, a couple of bits of business to get to real quick. First of all, there is a book right now, the Castle of Horror Anthology Volume 2, Holiday Horrors, available in Undead Tree Edition and also available as an ebook for your Kindle if you get it for your Kindle, it is currently part of the Kindle Unlimited program, which means you can read it for free. And the reason I bring it up is because our very own Stephen D. Sullivan has a story featured in the book. This is a holiday-themed anthology, so all the stories are holiday-themed, which I guess is what holiday-themed means. But Steve's story is Krampus versus the Werewolf. So, hey, go check it out. And speaking of Steve... He was also somebody who reached out to me, as well as a few other people, about the music of Val Luton's films. This came up earlier in the Satanic Rites of January when we were talking about the seventh victim. And Ken Height and I were talking about the music by Roy Webb that you can hear in a lot of the Val Luton films. And I was questioning whether or not that music was available on CD. And actually, right now, you can get a CD with music from The Cat People and The Body Snatcher for like $9. So I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to that as well. There is also a CD soundtrack available for The Curse of the Cat People, but that's currently selling for over $100. And what that typically means is that the CD is going to be or is already out of print and you're either paying second market prices or I don't know why the studios jack prices up right before things go out of print, but it's what happens. So that being said, The Curse of the Cat People, I don't have that soundtrack. But if any of you guys and gals do and would like to part with it, same. Okay, I know I said a second ago we're going to get into the rest of the show, but one more thing. Just one more thing. Those of you who follow me on Twitter and Facebook know that I've been posting a few things on eBay lately. Yeah, it's time to kind of pare back a little bit on the collection, get rid of a few things that I don't need, haven't enjoyed in a long time. Things that don't give me joy. <laughs> 
time to let them go and my need to get some bills paid immediately like not to sound desperate but yeah you know uh can be your gain so i'll make sure there's a link to my ebay listings in the show notes as well and if you've already checked it out once please keep coming back because i'll be adding a few more things over the next few days okay you know what let's get to the bulk of the show kenny professor frenzy you guys ready i am let's go author of Psycho comes the ultimate in sheer bone-chilling horror the house that drip blood 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 terror waits for you in every room in the house that drip blood climb its creaking stairs walk down its dark and chilling corridors where untold horrors wait at every turn the house that drip blood A madman lurking on the staircase. A severed head in the closet. Coffins in the cellar. Vampires, vixens, and victims. You'll find them all in The House That Drip Blood. In color from the Cinerama Releasing Corporation. Rated GP. All ages, parental guidance. Hello, this is Rod Barnett the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast about eclectic film from across the decade. On The Bloody Pit, we've covered Godzilla movies, Doctor Who movies starring Peter Cushing, The Outer Limits, Fu Manchu, Doc Savage, old radio shows, my favorite movies of all time, a Lucio Fulci film or two, 1970s science fiction movies, and a long series on the films of Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti. So if you're curious to learn a little bit about some of the stranger areas of cult film and television, join me and my rotating group of co-hosts on The Bloody Pit. You might even learn something about Coffin Joe. And that's scary, people. Very scary. Paramount Pictures presents a dual, ghoul, double scream show. Scream number one. Frankenstein and the monster from hell. See the eeriest transplant in the history of horror. His brain came from a genius. His body from a killer. His soul came from hell. It's the newest and most frightening Frankenstein ever filmed. Scream number two. Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. The only man alive feared by the walking dead. Born the night creatures and the blood family. Captain Kronos is here. Frankenstein and the monster from hell. Plus, Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter, all shot. In color, both rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parents. Now scream! Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Welcome to Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories, created especially for Monster Kid Radio. My name is Jerry Green. In this segment, I'm going to tell you a story from EC Horror Comics. 
Today's story is Man from the Grave. It's from The Haunt of Fear, number four, the November-December issue from 1950. It was written by Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein, and the art was by Wally Wood. So sit back and relax while I tell this undead tale. One warm evening, under a full moon, a hand lurched out of a lonely grave. The corpse pulled itself out from under the dank earth and walked through the town, proclaiming, I must continue my work. The sickened residents were shocked to see such a gruesome sight. Who is this man, and why won't he stay peacefully dead? Let's find out. Some years ago, John Wayland was a young, handsome artist. He couldn't sell his work and was so poor he couldn't feed himself, never mind purchase painting materials. He was forced to pawn off all his macabre paintings just to buy food. Suddenly, there was a knock at his door. It was a letter from the editors of a horror magazine. They wanted to talk to him about doing covers for their books. John went to their offices to speak with them, but they said they needed to see samples of his work. Sadly, John had pawned them all, and when he went to the pawn shop to get them back, the pawnbroker refused to give them because John had no money. In the past, John had borrowed money from his artist friend, Bill Johnson, so he decided to try to get $15 from him to purchase his paintings back. Bill refused his request, however, calling him a worthless bum and told him to get out of his apartment. This angered the desperate John, who punched Bill, knocking him out. In his fury, John decided to kill his tormentor. He found some etching acid Bill used in his work and plunged the man's face into it. John gathered up Bill's art gear and decided to paint new pictures and bring them to the magazine. But the dying man on the floor saw this and cursed him. He said the gear would bring John no peace. He would always have to use them and be unable to rest without working. No problem, thought John, as his old friend died on the floor. He went home and created new horrific paintings, which the horror magazine loved. He got the very lucrative job of creating the covers for the magazine. As the months passed, John got better and better at this work. His paintings were gruesome, and he could not stop making them. The magazine finally had as many of these paintings as they could use and asked him to take a break. But John could not stop until finally... Without food or water, John died. Sometime after, John's body was removed from the apartment and buried. The landlady cleaned up the vacant apartment. She heard some footsteps coming up the stairs. Who could it be? The door opened, revealing the hideous visage of the decaying John Wayland, who has returned to continue his work. The End I hope you enjoyed that gravely serious story. This tale worked really well for me. I could empathize with the down-on-his-luck artist and the lengths he went to for his art. Since the story was told kind of in a flashback, you already knew someone was going to rise from the grave, and for a quick second I thought it might be Bill Johnson. But halfway through the story, all of the twist endings had been revealed, and the remainder of the story was really just letting the curse play out. I appreciate this. The weird Shyamalanian twists that may have surprised the 1950s reader don't really work today. And even though we know how this story will work out, it's fun to watch it happen. Wally Woods' art works here. The young John Wayland looks very much like a young Clint Eastwood, although this story came out five years before Eastwood's debut as the rat-hunting scientist in Revenge of the Creature. 
If you're interested in a copy of The Haunt of Fear Volume 1, the book can be purchased on Amazon, and you can find a link to buy it on the MKR website. I hope you enjoyed the story. My name is Jerry Green, and you can listen to my podcast on the Frenzy feed. On Wednesday, we have the Professor Frenzy Show, where we talk about new indie comics. And on Monday, we have Memory Minute Monday, a nostalgia podcast. And on Sunday, you can listen to Frenzy Peace Theater, where we recap and discuss classic comic book stories. You can catch me on Twitter at Professor Frenzy, and search for Professor Frenzy on YouTube, where you can now join me on a live webcast on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, where I'll show off my weekly comic book purchases and play a little guitar. Still working on the format, but stay tuned. And thanks for listening. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor A house of high fashion, a dazzling whirl of elegance, of exotic, extravagant beauties. An adventurous journey into the devastating allure of the most sophisticated women and their intimate secrets. Suddenly, these lace curtains ignite a drama that will lacerate your emotions. Blood and black lace. <coughs> who is this shrouded, sadistic, sordid fiend who maims and murders? Why this bloodthirsty orgy? This holocaust of lives. Blood and black lace in bleeding color. For shattering, shivering, shocking experience. If somebody asked you to describe a movie to them, what would you say? Would you say that Guardians of the Galaxy is Star Wars meets the A-Team, or that Jurassic Park is Westworld meets the Lost World? The X meets Y pitch is a long-standing Hollywood tradition, one that's been used to sell plenty of movies that otherwise probably wouldn't have been made. But instead of starting with a script and comparing it to two movie titles for an X meets Y pitch, what if we started with two movie titles and improvised the pitch? Well, on my podcast, X Meets Y, that's exactly what we do. I'm Jonathan Inbody, and each episode, I and a guest will randomly select two movie titles, and then we have half an hour to come up with a new original movie idea that could be described as Movie X Meets Movie Y. We've done episodes like Ocean's Eleven Meets 2001 A Space Odyssey, Godzilla Meets Old Yeller, and Robocop Meets Dead Poet Society. Basically, it's a half-hour sprint through a brainstorming session, and it is a lot of fun. If any of that sounds even the slightest bit fun to you, then you should give X Meets Y a listen. It's available wherever you find your podcasts or at xmeetsy.libsyn.com. Hopefully, you'll hear my voice again very soon, but for now, enjoy the rest of your regularly scheduled podcast, you lucky so-and-so. No coffin could ever hold him. Dracula is alive.
Dracula has risen from the grave. Dracula, the most fearsome name in any language. The most feared being ever to haunt the living. Carlson, Hammer's new star discovery, Dracula's most beautiful victim. Dracula has risen from the grave to resist him is useless, to rise against him is futile, to know him is eternal damnation. Dracula has risen from the grave. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. This week's movie, The Satanic Rites of Dracula, was covered in issue 153 from May of 1979, six years after its initial release. The article relates an interesting history of the film which explains why coverage is so late. Let's take a look at it. Count Dracula and his vampire brides kept American film monster fans waiting five years for their appearance on the scene. The final installment in Hammer's film's Haunting Dracula series was originally made in 1972 and released in all parts of the world except America in 1973 as The Satanic Rites of Dracula. Why? For the answer to that intriguing question, we must turn back the clock 10 years to 1969. That year, Hammer unleashed its third Dracula film starring Christopher Lee, Dracula Has Risen from the Grave which was more successful than any previous Hammer Shocker. So much so that the Hammer Company was given the Queen's Award. After that, Hammer very naturally assumed that making more and more vampiric pictures would bring in more and more customers, and everybody would live happily ever after. During 1970 through 1972, Hammer released no less than nine vampire pics. Taste the Blood of Dracula, Scars of Dracula, The Vampire Lovers, Lust for a Vampire, Countess Dracula, Twins of Evil, Vampire Circus, Dracula AD 1972, and Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter. That's an average of three a year, a new vampire every four months. It's no wonder that by the time the company got around to Count Dracula and his vampire brides, known then under its permanent British title, The Satanic Rites of Dracula, everyone was temporarily vamped out. 
The Satanic Rites of Dracula received major release in Europe and other parts of the world. But on the American shores, well, Warner Brothers, who had bought the rights to the film, let it sit around on their shelves collecting dust for a year before selling it to American International. AIP then announced a release date of April 1974. April came and went. No Satanic Rites of Dracula. Then they announced an October 1974 release date. October came and went. Still, no Satanic Rites of Dracula. The film sat around the AIP offices nearly four years before somebody wised up and sold it to another company, Dynamite Films. The Dynamite distributors subsequently retitled it Count Dracula and His Vampire Brides. Now, the American fans who thought they would never see the lost Christopher Lee Dracula film, the absolute final installment in the Hammer Dracula series, have had the opportunity to see the final chapter of the long-running saga. Evil is timeless. Dracula is evil. Dracula is timeless. That was Hammer's introductory catch line on the company's new release in 1972 when the final Dracula picture was in the planning stages. A phrase that seemingly justified Hammer's reason for updating the Dracula legend and bringing the count to modern times. They had done it only once before, in Dracula AD 1972. Fans of Hammer, of Dracula, of all that is so wonderfully horrible in monsterdom were outraged. Dracula AD 1972 went against all the previous Hammer Dracula trademarks. Traditionalists were quick to point out that removing Count Dracula from his natural element, the Gothic error, was an irreversible error. Unfortunately, all the accusations and assumptions made about Hammer's first modern-day Dracula were all too true. But Hammer simply sat back and said, Evil is timeless. Dracula is evil. Dracula is timeless and began making plans for their second modern-day Dracula project. Fans moaned and groaned. Critics snickered, but Hammer remained undaunted and to everyone's delighted surprise turned out a picture that, despite its modernistic, indeed almost futuristic setting, is one of the finest productions ever to come out of the Hammer fold. The article continues with the beginning-to-end synopsis of the film, Again, spoilers were welcomed by us 70s Monsters kids because it was unlikely we would actually see this movie. My first viewing was when I was in my 50s. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Dracula has risen from the grave. Boy, does he give a hickey. The two most terrific names in screen evil. Together in one shock show. Horror of Frankenstein and Scars of Dracula. Your ticket entitles you to be frightened out of your wits at no extra charge. Horror of Frankenstein and Scars of Dracula. In color, rated R. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the Monster vs. Monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, 
psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited Monster Kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. Monster Kid Radio listeners, I thought I should probably come clean before we get into this segment here where we talk about this film. Monster Kid Radio has been acquired by uh, another company. We've, we've been bought out. I get to keep my position here. I just now get my paychecks from the D.D. Denim family of companies. So moving forward... That's where, <laughs> I, I don't know how much further I can go with that. Welcome to Monster Kid Radio, Alistair Hughes. What's up, man? Thank you very much, Derek. Oh, I, I didn't expect that DD Denim stuff at all. Sorry, I've just got to recover myself for a minute there. Um, Happy New Year. Likewise. Uh, and you're actually into it a little deeper than I am. I, I am. In fact, I think we had a conversation. It was the 1st of January here. And it was still the 31st of December where you were. So not only was I a day in the future, I was a year or possibly even an entire decade into the future. So that was a weird kind of feeling, really. You know, as a monster kid who watches a lot of science fiction, classic science fiction films, you'd think it'd be weird, but really, it's just kind of par <laughs> for the course, you know? <laughs> You're right. You're right. So the reason we talk about him being in the future, listeners, Al, you're down in New Zealand. That's correct. Yes. The other part of the world. This is an international recording that's happening right now. MKR spans the world, Derek, and you should be proud of that. Well, I'll put that on my business card, my next batch of business yeah, do, cards. Do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been over a year since we've actually chatted and had you on the show, but we've been in touch by Facebook and email and that yes. sort of thing, talking about some Monster Kid stuff and some non-Monster Kid stuff. But for mm. the listeners, what have you been up to? I think, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, Derek, it's um, summer here. We're uh, more than a month into our summer. It's shaping up to be a good one. So really, I've been getting away from my keyboard as much as I possibly can. Uh, I've been swimming and cycling and trying out this fresh air thing and finding that I quite like it. Um, <laughs> but possibly of more interest to what we're going to be talking about, just recently I've written the opening uh, contribution to ATB Publishing's uh, upcoming volume on the X-Files and the Night Stalker. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And uh, my piece actually includes a short excerpt, which features a cartel of very familiar early 1970s vampires. I think you and the readers possibly might be able to take some guesses as to who they might be. But the meeting is presided over by a certain 
D D denim. Oh no! So <laughs> he gets everywhere, <laughs> and um, p- particularly pertinent to what we're going to be discussing. Uh, I've just recently produced a four-page graphic for Dacre Stoker's biography of his great great uncle Bram Stoker. Oh, wow. It's called Stoker on Stoker. It's from Telos Publishing, which I've had experience with. So now I feel I've kind of whittled down my degrees of separation with the Count. And I'm not sure if that's a position people want to be in, but there it is. <laughs> Finally, I'm, I'm, I'm currently working on an inside cover for the next issue of the Little Shop of Horrors uh, magazine. And I'm doing it in the style of a hero of mine, Drew Struzan, who does those wonderful Lucasfilm posters and everything else. So um, that's been a lot of fun. Yeah, so that's that's me, I think, Derek. Wow. Yeah, you just keep them busy doing what you do and keeping the Monster Kid flame alive down there in New Zealand and around the world with Little Shop of Horrors magazine. That's amazing. That's fantastic, man. This internet thing's pretty cool, I've decided, Derek. It actually allows you to keep in touch with people regardless of what country you happen to be in. So um, I feel like the worldwide community of Monster Kids really is really is a strong thing and it's really only um a a keyboard stroke away sometimes so that's great as far as i'm concerned definitely and with podcasting and social media we can all be in touch with each other and support each other and drool over the artwork that you post and (laughs) 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 and and i mentioned the artwork for listeners who don't know al is the mastermind the artist and author behind the incredibly cool book info gothic which again ties in a little bit to what we're talking about today because it just takes a look at the hammer horror films and some of the sci-fi films and breaks them down infographic style i actually was flipping through it earlier today to get ready for this recording thanks derek i I actually did did the same thing because you know as we've discussed before something i failed miserably in was trying to reconcile all of the hammer draculas into into one consistent timeline Maybe more clever people than me can, but these two modern day, or at least for for, for the time, contemporary set Hammer Dracula films, definitely a timeline all of their own. And maybe that's what makes them even, even more special. The comic book nerd in me wants to desperately make it all make sense. Wants to create a a continuity, a timeline from the first film to the last film, and maybe even sneak the Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires in there somewhere. Yeah. But I know it's really hard (laughs) because because the, the years just don't line up. The dates just don't match. Except for the last two films, they do tend to, or they, they do stick together. The first two films, too, I think, are okay. But the last yes. two films definitely are a part one and a part two. The the um, last two films did definitely dovetail, or maybe that mm-hmm. should be that tale, because they mm-hmm. were designed that way. And uh, they f- follow on from each other really, really well. They do. They have returning characters, and not just Cushing, not just Van Helsing, but we have some returning characters as well, which... I don't think we really saw at all in any of the previous Dracula films, with the exception of Van Helsing, did we? You're, you're absolutely right. I think we've mentioned before that the uh, character of Clove reappeared, but of course he was played by a different actor. And even if he was the same character, I think that's a highly debatable thing. But how cool was it to see Michael Coles back? 
Yes. What a wonderful character and what a wonderful actor. Towards the end of the film, he completes his character journey for me. And we'll talk a little bit about that as we go. But I yes. love Inspector Murray. I really do. And to have him come back and, you know, I even enjoyed having Jessica Van Helsing back, even though she's played by a different actress. Uh, yes. She's played by the absolutely fabulous Joanna Lumley. <laughs> I did that on purpose. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Joanna Lumley <laughs> takes over the role and she does give it a different kind of vibe, but I really liked her too. I, it's interesting. I mean, I, I've been just about a lifelong fan of jo- Joanna Lumley, but in terms of how she is known in the US, I was kind of curious as to, you know, how, how you would know her best. I'm assuming it's absolutely fabulous, but you know, for all I know, it might be other appearances that you know her from. I was never really a big fan of absolute. I mean, I knew what it was and, and I caught mm. a few episodes here and there, but I wasn't like a diehard. So yeah. I knew so, she was in that and I knew she did some genre television as well, but really I didn't have a lot of experience with her mm. until I started digging. Ah, yes. What about in your part of the world, part of the country or part of the world, I guess? You probably know, Derek, with the genre digging that she was in the new Avengers and uh, right. <laughs> when I say Avengers, everyone thinks Marvel these days, of course. Um, but the Avengers, as in Steed, and originally M. Peel, the um, British espionage spy-fi series, um, she, she was in a follow-up series called The New Avengers. And um, she was playing a character called Purdy. And uh, she had a very unique hairstyle. But I was very, very young when that series was on. And I I was just very young and very stupid. And I just couldn't accept any substitute for Emma Peel. So Joanna Lumley didn't really register with me until a few years later, Sapphire and Steel came along. Oh, okay. I I don't know how well known the series is in the US, but... uh, it's absolutely incredible. There's never been anything like it before, and I don't think there's been anything like it since. But as soon as I saw Joanna Lumley in Sapphire and Steel, I immediately became a fan, and I've loved her and everything that she's appeared in since. I'm not necessarily an AbFab fan, but the fact that she's done a Hammer film just makes me very, very happy indeed. Oh, sure. Uh, Sapphire mm. and Steel uh, is from the like late 70s, early 80s. I've seen some of them. I haven't seen yeah. the entire run, but I've seen a few episodes here and there. It's it's mm. a kind of a supernatural sci-fi. It's just cool. <laughs> it's <laughs> very know? cool. It's really it's hard to kind of explain. To yeah. <laughs> but I would recommend it if people can get their hands on it and track it down. And one of these days I plan to go back and watch some more. So Because oh, I love to it. And David McCallum's in it, and he's great too. Oh, he's always good, isn't he? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. Okay, so uh, that that's great. David McCallum's great. Joanna Lumley's great. We got to talk about the big heavy hitters in this film, and we're going to do that. But you know, there's something we got to do first. I do know. That's why I've been trying to hold back there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So for new listeners who don't know, we have a game that we play here on Monster Kid Radio called The Classic Five. I have a deck of cards here. Each one of these cards has a this or that. Which movie do you prefer style question? There are no wrong answers. It's just a way to get a couple of Monster Kids talking or in the case of most people that come on the show, talking even more about monster movies. <laughs> are you ready to play around of The Classic Five? I certainly am. Right on. All right, here we go. I'm going to go ahead and get the deck out, and I'm going to try to break into a few of the questions that are in development right now. Let me pull that up here as well. And some listeners or some people may have heard some of these uh, questions before, but you know what? 
everybody's got a different uh, an answer for these things sometimes, and even the same person will have a different answer more than once, just kind of depending on what day of the week it is, uh, what was the last movie you saw, that sort of thing. So here we go, card number one. What's your favorite Val Luton film? Oh, that's a good one. I love all of his films, Derek, but I will have to say Cat People. I mean, I know that everybody says cat people, but for very good reason. The film's obviously made on a tiny budget because that's all that Val Luton was allowed. I know that you've been listening to a certain podcast that I do as well, which gives lavish detail into the background of of these movies. But Cat People just has an atmosphere charisma almost that draws you you in you immediately become captivated and of course it's exquisitely filmed and with Luton it's it's the tiny things I mean most of us know about the Luton bus and yes that gets me every single time even though I know it's coming the swimming pool scene with those crazy echoing screams and the shadows, but the smaller things, uh, the expressions on the lead actress's face that shows that there's far more going on behind her eyes than, than, than is actually being spoken. It is a solid gold classic, and I just couldn't recommend it strongly enough. Cat People is a phenomenal film, one of the best. The Luton bus, I mean, it's easy to say, yeah, it's a jump scare, but the way Luton worked these into his films... Mm. it's more than just a jump scare. It is something that lingers. It is so good. The podcast you're referring to is the uh, Secret History of Hollywood podcast produced by Adam Roche, who does an amazing job. Makes me jealous, man, because he's doing the kind of podcasting that, I mean, it's another level. It is so good. He's he's an extremely talented man. And uh, yeah, it's been an amazing journey following that podcast through the life and career of Val Luton. And uh, yeah, I'd, uh, I would also thoroughly recommend that to anyone who's interested as well. All right. Card number two, who never appeared in a Hammer film, but you wish they had. <laughs> We've just been talking about Sapphire and Steel. Mm-hmm. I'll start by saying that my, my previous answer to that the last time we spoke, Derek. Oh, did was, we do this last time? Is this a repeat question no, for you? No, oh, okay. You, you, you actually didn't ask me as much as I wished that you had. Oh. So I actually <laughs> mentioned during our conversation what my answer would have been. And that was David Warner. Oh, that's right. Because I'm a fantastic fan. And you know, Derek, maybe it's not even too late. But anyway, for this conversation, because we've been talking about Sapphire and Steel, it suddenly occurred to me, David McCallum, wouldn't he be incredible in a Hammer film? Oh, he'd be really fun. He's just got that really solid, understated heroism about him. I mean, I've loved him since The Invisible Man. Um, which I think was the first thing I ever saw him in. And then I saw The Man from Uncle and Ilya Kuryakin. All, all the roles that he's that, that he's played, um, I've always really enjoyed David McCallum. He's one of those actors who does so much by doing so little. And um always happy to see him on my screen. And uh, he would have been amazing in a Hammer film. I think you're absolutely right. And you just mentioned The Invisible Man. I, I have not thought about that in a long time this was a a tv series from the 70s yes and wow now i want i don't even know is that available on dvd or anything anywhere i would love to see it again it's been forever since i've thought about it i think that it might be i was listening to something recently which reminded me that incredibly the 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 music or at least the theme was done by henry mancini yeah yeah and 
And it's the theme to The Invisible Man that I always remember. And I mean, it's been it's been many, many decades since I've seen The Invisible Man, but the fact that that theme is still in my head kind of shows you just how amazing Henry Mancini is, I think. Sure. Yeah, well, Mancini was was a master. I, most yeah. of his music is something that'll get stuck in your head for at least a day if you listen to it. <laughs> uh, and The Invisible Man, it was created by Harv Bennett, man that was yeah. instrumental in the success of a lot of the Star Trek films, and I've been in a big Star Trek kick lately, so that's mm. important to me right now. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. Wow. Oh, now I want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we have questions and another movie to talk about first. So card number we three. Do. Card number three. Which movie do you prefer? Planet of the Vampires or Planet of the Apes? Oh. That's from our deep cut. Uh, <laughs> that is a deep cut. I, I, I would have to be honest and say that Planet of the Apes made such an incredible, indelible mark on me when I was a kid that it would be really hard for me not to say Planet of the Apes. It's not necessarily my favorite in the series, but the fact that it is a series of films, and I've seen every single one of them, I don't know how many times. Yeah, it, it just had such a huge cultural impact that I'm going to have to go probably the easier route and say Planet of the Apes. Incidentally, Escape from the Planet of the Apes is my all-time favorite. That was going to ask. ask. Another time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've seen both of them on the big screen, uh, and I love them both, but I yeah. think for cultural impact here, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on the Planet of the Apes thing. I love Planet of the Vampires. It's beautiful. Oh, it is. But it is. Yeah, I, I saw with the apes too. So, and 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 of course, as as we know, Planet of the Vampires had its own influence on culture. Mm-hmm. You'll know what I'm talking about. Um, so it it certainly isn't without its own influence. But Planet of the Apes has just been so huge, even now. I think exactly. Mm. So so what was that? That was question number three. Okay. Yeah. Question number four. Which movie do you prefer? Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> The Giant Claw or Reptilicus? <laughs> <laughs> okay, once again, leaning heavily on nostalgia. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think one of the very, very first monster movies I ever saw, I shudder to think how young I was. My God, can you have memories of movies when you're four years old, five years old? Anyway, I had this very, very clear memory of this film I saw about a giant bird which swoops down on a train and picks it up. And, and this film just excited me so much. I remember being so into it. It's got one of the planes. It's coming after me. Godforsaken antimatter galaxy, millions and millions of light years from the Earth. Atomic hydrogen weapons capable of wiping cities, countries off the face of the Earth, are completely ineffective against this creature from the skies. Attacking the United Nations building. 
And I think the final shot was the claw. It's been a while since I've seen it, Derek, so please correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> the claw is sort of pointing up in, into the sky. And I I really wanted that not to be the end. I wanted the bird to start twitching again and get back up because I was really behind the bird and I really wanted, you know, to see more of him. And that film made such a huge impression on me that I think when I started school, the first one act play that I ever wrote for my classmates <laughs> involved um, some people on a plane that was being menaced by a giant bird. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea what what the film was called or what actually happened in it. Um, like, like many of us, Derek, it was years and years and years later that I finally saw the film again. And I don't mind that the bird itself is the dopiest looking monster in screen history. I just really, really like that film. <laughs> <laughs> I like them both. But for me, it's it's the giant claw because of Mara Corday. She's amazing in that. She's wonderful. Yes. Yeah. All right. So final card. And this one I'm going to admit to actually handpicking. I'm not going random here. I wanted to pick this one in particular because of what we're talking about today. It's a Dracula style or Dracula themed card. Mm -hmm. Who else could have or should have played Dracula? Okay. I'm going to think in terms of classic films. Okay. This maybe isn't a huge stretch, but I think Basil Rathbone would have been amazing. Ooh. I think his Sheriff of Nottingham gives some clue as to how great he could have been. And physically, I mean, he just ticks every box um, as, as an imposing Dracula. But also... Wouldn't you have loved? Wouldn't you love to have seen what Lon Chaney Senior, the original choice, would have done with the role? Oh wow! I mean, I know it's maybe Monster Kid history's biggest what if, and all of us, I think, I can speak for all of us, or I'm going to try to. All of us are, are glad that Baylor got his chance instead, but I just can't stop thinking: what would Lon Chaney Senior have done with with, with that role? I've heard that the uh, Cheney version of London After Midnight, the Cheney film that is mm. lost to times or whatever, I have heard that it actually probably wasn't very good because, and especially now that we've built it up so much, is this, yeah, you know, that, but I don't care, man. I would love to have seen that. And, you know, Cheney did so much with his body. Yeah, mm. like OC did the double jointed hand thing, you know, and I don't know if anybody could ever do that better, but Cheney did so <laughs> much with his body and could be so imposing. Mm. Wow, that would have been, that would have been something. It would. I mean, I mean, it, it would have been a whole alternative timeline for Dracula cinema and maybe horror film cinema. I mean, oh, sure. our, our image of who Dracula is would have been completely different. But the fact that we had Baylor and his performance and his accent, that sort of set the course for, for, for the rest of time. And as curious as I am, maybe even more curious about Lon Chaney Sr., I'm just really glad that history worked out the way that it did, I think. I've made it quite clear that I'm on Team Bela pretty much every time. You have. <laughs> I, I love Lugosi. I mean, I love the others too, but Bela, I always felt like, never gets the due that he deserves. 
yeah. Dracula made him a star. If Lon mm-hmm. Chaney Sr. had done Dracula, he would be coming to the project as a star. So I That's do wonder how that would have shaped mm. even universal horror and, and, like you said, cinema history. Because Chaney was well-known and respected and loved by the film community and the audiences. So what would that have done to the popularity of Dracula and the rest of the classic horror cycle? Or even Universal's fate regarding the Lemleys and the financial issues they had down the line and getting ousted yes. from the studio. What would that have done? And it's just a whole thing that I want to I want to believe somewhere there's an alternate reality where that did happen. <laughs> yeah, I know you, you, you're absolutely right. But you um, raise an interesting point, Derek, about Baylor not being well known. I just realized that, that really the same thing could have been said for Christopher Lee. I mean, obviously, he'd appeared as Frankenstein's creature, but actually, sure. nobody was going to recognize him after that. Mm-hmm. But once again, Hammer did the same thing. They bought a relatively unknown actor into a role which changed his life and probably people's perception of, of the character for, for the rest of time, really. I could definitely see that. Well, I would like to see that anyway. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. Well, that that is a round of the Classic Five listeners. There is a deck available for you to buy for your very own over at Drive Through Cards. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. And stay tuned because I'm still working on getting deck two out and available for people to buy as well as the Kaiju supplement and a few other things that I've got in the works. Al, thanks for playing, man. Oh, thanks, Derek. It, it makes me extremely nervous, but I always really, really enjoyed at the same time. So, so thanks. Those were excellent questions. My wheels are spinning in my head about this whole Lon Chaney Jr. is, I'm sorry, <laughs> senior as Dracula thing. And man, this might turn into something I do down the line. But anyway, hmm. I'm just going to kind of leave that hanging. Let's sure. talk about a movie some more. Let's talk about the Titanic rights of Dracula, which is pretty much what started this whole satanic rites of january theme month talking with al on facebook kind of gave us the idea to do this and kind of tie it into january and make a whole thing out of it and (laughs) i'm so glad we did it's been too long since you and i have chatted anyway it's been over a year like i said earlier since we had you on the show to talk about dracula 1972 ad so to have you back to talk about this one and i feel like this does not get a lot of positive attention overall but I love it. I feel exactly the same way. It has been too too long since we've spoken to each other, and kind of like, kind of like Van Helsing and Dracula. I feel that we've had this unfinished business. Oh no! So um, <laughs> it's nice. <laughs> it's really good to to finally get to this movie um, that you and I re- really enjoy so much. You're probably right. It doesn't get a lot of love. And we said the same about AD 1972 as well. But also like that film, I think maybe the tide is changing a bit. I'm really encouraged more and more by the comments that I see posted and and the feedback that I read about. People are coming to these films fresh again. You know, we had decades and decades of received fan wisdom telling us that the contemporary Hammer Dracula films were disasters and they were terrible and it was an awful idea. But I feel that we've got to the point now where we've kind of outgrown that. And because these movies are so easily accessible these days, people are coming to them fresh. They're watching them and they're forming their own opinions. And they're realizing that these are actually really, really good fun. And now, and I don't know how it is in your part of the world, but here they're on Blu-ray. 
And yeah. you can buy the Blu-ray, watch the Blu-ray. It is the best that I feel the film has ever looked in the home media market. And there are so many things that I even picked up on watching this time around that I don't remember really kind of catching before because all the previous transfers for home release were these public domain, put 25 movies on one disc kind of release. So the resolution yes. isn't great, that sort of thing. It's kind of bare bones, throw them out to the market and make a buck or two. There was some real care taken to make this transfer available. And while the Blu-ray is bare bones, it still looks phenomenal. It looks so phenomenal, in fact, that it kind of spoils uh, D.D. Denham's attempts to disguise <laughs> his identity. I was just about to say that. It looks almost too good because, <laughs> come on, man, if you didn't know that was Christopher Lee sitting there. <laughs> oh, well. It looks fantastic. And, and what, one of the films, well, one of the things I really appreciated about watching it this time around was that they do actual night filming, which Hammer didn't always stretch to. And it makes such a difference as well. It's just got a feel about it that you just can't fake, I think. It feels more real in, in a mm. way. I love the other Dracula films. I love the other Hammer films that are gothic set or you know, in a previous period or whatever. And I know that they did some outdoor exterior shooting with you know, the, the Black Forest and all that. I, I know that. But most of it is a set. You know, and, mm -hmm. and a lot of it does feel a little confining. And that's okay. You know, I, I get yeah. it. But there is something about these two films, uh, 8072 and this one, that they, they feel like they could take place in the entirety of the real world. I mean, obviously, this is a sequel to Dracula AD 1972. But in some ways, I feel it's a very, very different film. It's like the scratched and sullied other side of the coin in the Hammer modern day Dracula films. Because um, I feel that whereas AD 1972 was groovy, Satanic Rites is grimy. It's kind of highlighting the, the other aspects of the early 70s culture. So instead of Stone Ground and Dig the Music Kids and the Cavern Club, here we've got a motorcycle gang. We've got espionage and we've got a spy-fi plot to destroy the world. You know, there's surprising nudity. As we said before, not the sort of thing you want to watch with your parents in the room, maybe. <laughs> and um, there's casual, very unglamorous violence, which many of the contemporary thr thrillers of the 1970s had. So I guess AD 1972 is kind of showing the flower power fun side of the 70s, whereas this to me seems to be showing the much more, the much more grimy side of things. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good way to to explain the differences because I've been having a hard time putting my finger on it because even though the movies do take place one after the other, maybe a couple of years between production, there is such a, a shift in tone and, and feel, even though yes. we've got some returning characters, uh, the storyline is continuing, there's just something different about it. And I haven't been able to nail it down in my own head, but I think you just nailed it, man. Well, thanks. I, mean, <laughs> I wasn't sure if I, if I was making any sense or, or, or not, but just, just putting the two films side by side, that's kind of something that occurred to me. L looking at these films as well, just as a little sidetrack, I kind of like to think of Satanic Rites as the second pilot film to that 70s TV series, oh, man. which I wish they had made, you know, the Van Helsing Files, possibly. I would have loved to have seen that. Yeah, 
co-starring Inspector Murray and Jessica Van Helsing. So I, in, in my head, I kind of see AD 1972 as Hammer's Night Stalker. And then Satanic Rites as Hammer's Night Strangler. <laughs> I love prior, that. <laughs> prior to the TV series. So now I've either made a late or a very, very, very early Dan Semberlink. So there you go. <laughs> I love that though so much. That would oh, that would have been wonderful. I I would have loved to have seen 70s Peter Cushing action heroing his way through something with Dracula right. and Inspector Murray along for the ride. And you know eventually <laughs> the executives would make Inspector Murray and Jessica have a relationship and but but whatever, yes. it doesn't matter. It'd still be cool. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh wow. But it's 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 interesting. One exception maybe to the um, rule which I just spoke about that AD seventy two was the lighter side. Um, It sort of occurred to me that in AD seventy two, Dracula appears to be murdering his female cast, whereas in Satanic Rites he's vampirizing them and giving them Airbnb accommodation in the cellar. So, you know. I feel like Dracula's motives are a little murky in this film. I mean, I mm-hmm. I love the film, uh, but you know, we're talking about the movie. We, Mark, there are going to be some criticisms here. I do feel oh, like sure. Dracula's motivations are a little murky. You know, why is he making more brides if really ultimately it's about destroying the world? What's he need the brides for? But you know, whatever. It gives us an yeah. awesome scene or two. So. Oh, God, it does. It really does. So this movie begins with the satanic rite, Mm -hmm. but it's not to resurrect Dracula this time. In fact, we don't get a resurrection for Dracula for the first time since um, Horror of Dracula way back in 1958. So that was an interesting departure from the usual hammer pattern. Yeah, it's just kind of assumed that, yep, Dracula's back. There's really no backstory given there and i'm okay with that but you're right you're absolutely right yeah um but i i couldn't help myself i had another random thought which i'm going to share with you and i thought that maybe this isn't the resurrected dracula from ad 1972 maybe he's actually stepped in from one of the other timelines that i failed (laughs) to reconcile so you know maybe this is the count from the sammy davis jr film one more time oh no (laughs) (laughs) i just thought i'd I'd, uh, put it out there derek but maybe I shouldn't have. <laughs> well, I think about once a year, I think about the movie one more time and, you know, we're hitting it early now. So, all right, <laughs> we're good. I've hit my, my quote. <laughs> oh, the, the movie does focus around what Lee is up to, what Dracula's up to, but there's so many other things going on around him. You mentioned the spy-fi elements of it. I hmm. love that there is an element within, I'm within, is it MI5? That is looking into these spooky things that are happening and it turns into a little vampire hunting thing and i love that so much i really love it as well and and it sort of reminded me strongly last time we spoke about ad 1972 Mm -hmm. you were talking about how good the character of inspector murray was because when as you said they start talking about vampires Mm -hmm. instead of them being skeptical he says i know a guy and that is exactly, in fact, almost word for word, what happens in this film, mm-hmm. which makes him an even better character as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Just thinking about the the opening 
moments of this film. Yeah. What about that amazing motorcycle stunt? Now, as far as I can see, that's a real iron gate. And we know back in the early 70s that they certainly didn't use CGI. So uh, I think that stuntman really, really earned his money on that particular scene. There is something kind of 70s cool about the motorcycle gang element anyway with their matching vests and everything. The opening bit with the the motorcycles chasing the guy out and them getting shot by the car outside... Mm -hmm. There is some real menace here. It feels like this is a dangerous thing. Somebody could get really hurt here. It's something that, you know, I kind of feel when I watch the original uh, Road Warrior or Mad Max. I feel like there is the possibility that somebody really did get hurt here. And while I'm not excited about seeing somebody actually get hurt, uh, Mm. it does add an extra level of, oh my, you know, to the proceedings. Especially when it looks as good as it does on Blu-ray now. Before it's a little scratchy, maybe you can't see all the details, but you're right. You watch it in blue, you watch it in high def. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a metal gate. <laughs> yeah, that, that is a very heavy metal gate. Yeah, combined with the fact that it's literally a night that it's not day for night with you know the bright blue skies as mm-hmm. we're used to seeing in certain other Hammer films. There's a, there's nothing cozy about this film. A lot of Hammer films, I do actually feel a certain coziness with. I'd like to sort of just snuggle into the sofa and put on a hammer film and although it's a horror film i i find it cozy but there's nothing cozy about this one it feels edgy and dangerous and um it makes you worry about the safety of every character and as we find out later on that's for good reason to to add to that even in van helsing's office even in his study where it should realistically probably be the safest place for any of them to be because i mean it's van helsing's place right he's probably got a vampire safe room in the basement but (laughs) but there's something about even being in that room that feels dangerous and i don't know if it's because they're always yelling at jessica to get out or or the way it's (laughs) shot but there's something about even that scenario feeling dangerous Yes, sure. Going back to the opening minutes again, not only do we get full nudity, which is maybe a little bit unusual at this point, but we also get someone shot in the face. I mean, (laughs) I remember the first time I saw this and that shocked me. Yeah, (laughs) it still shocks me. Yeah, it's pretty intense. It, it is intense, but I was just kind of wondering while I was watching all this going on with my mouth hanging open. Is there anything more 70s than silences? <laughs> right? I mean, you just don't see them anymore. And I'm wondering when they went out of fashion. Possibly it was when Indiana Jones started making handguns sound like cannons. But um, yeah, you just don't see silences anymore. Right. Or hear them or not hear them, I guess. Or hear them or not hear them. You know what? Maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. It's it's now, you know, the action movie trope or whatever is to have the loud gunshots and explosions and making them sound bigger and louder than life. Exactly. Something about using a silencer. I don't know if it's a a cheaper way to go or whatever, but it does. Again, it's got that 70s spy vibe, which I love me a good Euro spy film. And I pick up on a lot of that in this here, too. And yeah, yeah, sure. So, of course, the the, um, spy thing increases even further when we go back to the special department's headquarters and we meet Peter Torrance, William Franklin, and Colonel Matthews. Mm -hmm. 
these are both excellent actors and very believable characters. Once again, it doesn't feel for, for a moment that these are actors in costume playing a part. They actually feel like very, very real people and quite ruthless people, I have to say. They're so blasé about the death of their agent that you kind of wonder who's the most inhuman here. Is it the vampires we know we're going to see or is it this government department? Hmm. Sorry if I shocked you. <laughs> no, 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 you're right. I mean, I know these are hardened professional people doing a really difficult job, but it, there didn't seem to be a lot of humanity in those characters. The guy dies on the table. I mean, the, the doctor's tending to him. Yeah. And there doesn't seem to be any other kind of reaction other than the doctor, like, no. well, no. he's not suffering I mean, the, anymore. The, the um, doctor himself is a little bit disgusted. And I was actually wondering, I'd forgotten if the doctor is going to cover up the um, body of, of, of the agent. And fortunately, he, he does. But he seems to take a long time to undo it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's quite, a, it's quite a striking scene, really. Yeah. He seems like the one who probably cares the most, but not necessarily because he's got some humanity to him, but more because mm. he's just kind of disgusted by the whole thing, which yeah. even seems worse, I suppose. You know, the secretary there doesn't seem to react at all to the dead guy sitting in behind him or laying behind her. There's nothing here that makes him feel, like you said, human. It's not until Murray comes along to kind of shake things up a little bit. That's exactly what I was going to say, although Inspector Murray is by no means a cuddly character, he, he has a twinkle and a warmth about him, not, mm -hmm. not, not in an overt way, but just enough. And as soon as he appears on screen, you kind of relax a bit. You think, oh, thank goodness. It's a familiar face and it's a character that I can relate to a bit better. Yeah. See, that's why we need more Inspector Murrays in movies, man. We need more Inspector Murray's in movies, and it's so good to see him. It really is. <laughs> Seeing a familiar face and such a great character. I love that he, um, and, and I said something earlier that I feel like this movie kind of completes character arc. He, he doesn't come to Dracula 8072 as a disbelieving guy. He's like, well, you know, okay, it's vampires. Let's deal with it. But there's always that kind of edge that he's reluctant to be involved. Whereas yes. in this film, I feel like he's accepted it. And one of his final scenes... <laughs> when the thug breaks in on him trying to figure out what to do and his response is not to freak out or whatever. It's just, I don't suppose you'd be open to a deal. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the guy. That's my Inspector Murray. I love it. Oh, I was saving that one for later. Sorry, I man. I, I've been, I've been bubbling. I think I got to say it. I got to say it. <laughs> no, not at all. You can absolutely have that one because yeah, I, I just thought, yeah. This is my guy. This is yep. this is someone that I want to see more of. And it was such a believable situation as well because you could see that he was exhausted. The last thing he wanted to do was have to fight his way out of this situation. So he tries another tact at the same time, knowing that it's never going to work. But uh, <laughs> it's just absolutely brilliant. Next time someone wants to rough me up, I'm going to try that. <laughs> Does that happen to you often, Al? All the time, all the time. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, you were saying at the beginning of this that you're spending a lot more time outside. I don't know what it's like down there in New Zealand. I don't know. <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll be asking people if they're open to deals. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> While these three characters are talking to each other, they um, name the high-ranking officials who have turned up at Pelham House. 
And I suppose you noticed, Derek, that one of them is called Lord Carradine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That was a nice reference. I think I may have found other references as the film goes on, but oh, yeah? we'll see if it's just my febrile imagination or whether there might be something something in them. One of the people that come out of the house, uh, Professor Keeley, played by yes. Freddie Jones. It's great to see Freddie Jones, man. Oh, yeah. And, and I mean, Willem, get to the scene, but he and Cushing sharing the screen together, that is by far and away the best acted scene in the entire film. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with anyone else's performance, but when you get those two guys in a room together, wow. It was great to see them together again because they were in uh, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed in 69. Exactly. And to see them have, you know, a little bit older, a little bit more distinguished. And it's only been a few years, but they still feel like they've matured quite a bit more. And it's, it's just yes. really fun to see them kind of go back and forth. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess we've got to talk about the appearance of the Kush. The Kush. And <laughs> the Kush. And, 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 and I mean, I'm, I'm already enjoying this film, but as soon as he appears, Derek, it just elevates the whole film into a whole other league, I think. When he's brought into the movie, it does kind of kick it into a different gear. It really does. In this film, he's kind of Grand Moff exposition, or, or, or at least that's the way that his character has been written. So he's coming in and he's laying down the supernatural law for Scotland Yard. And I'm not just saying this because I'm heavily, heavily biased. Cushing's far too good an actor to actually just settle for being a cipher. You know, he he raises the character far, far, far above that. But obviously he's laying the facts down for, for, for these guys. He's explaining vampire law. And my God, it's just mesmerizing, isn't it? Just sitting there listening to him. And it makes me think back to the first Hammer Dracula film. Or is it the mm. second where he's talking into the the recorder? Mm, talking about, right, yeah. yeah, where it's, it's again, it's an exposition moment. It's an info dump for the... And I always view those scenes as kind of like a, a way to communicate to the audience, this is what our lore is. This is what we're yes. going to do and explore later. And it always feels so natural with him. It does. It does, yeah. Like, I didn't even need the, the repeated audio later on in the film towards the end. I didn't need to be reminded of the Hawthorne thing because Cushing said it earlier and I was listening. What he exactly. says sticks, you know? <laughs> exactly. Well, for, for what I was thinking when they repeated that bit of audio, I thought, well, surely that's for people with very short concentration spans or maybe they right? out of the room at that point because how could you forget that? Mm-hmm. It, it also seems so out of the blue, that one element. When I first watched this movie, I knew all that stuff. I'd watched all the Dracula films from Hammer anyway, yeah. and I knew the, the steak, the garlic, the reflection, mm. the water, all that. And then yes. they just casually mentioned the Hawthorne thing. Then they bring in the new one. And I had never heard that before. No. And I don't know if I've even heard it since, to be honest. I don't think I, I have either. And maybe I'm presuming, but I suspect that you have, or at least you've had issues with this particular method of um, his demise. So it'd be interesting to see if you still feel that way. But just before we move on, I just wanted to say that this particular Van Helsing, Lorimer Van Helsing, he's once again that really fascinating mixture of this steely determination and courage. But because of Cushing's age, it's kind of blended with a sort of aging vulnerability and compassion so that sort of 
balances the two sides of this particular version or this particular member of, of the Van Helsing family. I think there's a danger sometimes with movies like this or, or franchises like this that have the same actor coming back to play a different generation of the same character that they start to feel kind of samey-samey. But I don't yeah. think Cushing did that here. I think Cushing, and I'm sure um, a lot of it goes to Cushing's capability as an actor. And you know, he brought this to the table more so than the writers, but he does make Lorimer a very different character than any other Van Helsing. And he'll do it again in Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Um, it, it wasn't something that had really occurred to me before until I rewatched The Satanic Rites, but you're absolutely right. This Lorimer Van Helsing is definitely a character all on his own, and it's really good to see that distinction. Sure. Speaking of the writing, I just quickly wanted to mention uh, the screenwriter, Don Houghton. Mm-hmm. I think he's an associate producer in this film as well. Of course, he, he um, wrote the final three Hammer Dracula films, including the one that you just mentioned. And I've always associated him with Doctor Who because he's written two of my favorite John Pertwee Doctor Who stories. Oh, okay. Now, it's probably just a coincidence. I'm sure it is, but I thought I would mention it anyway. The climax of this film, the whole film makes quite a big thing about it, is that it takes place on the Black Sabbath, uh, which is given as the 23rd day of the 11th month. Now, Any Doctor Who fan will tell you, Derek, that that's the very same day, the 23rd of November, that Doctor Who was first broadcast. Oh. Uh, Yeah. 57 years ago now, but the 23rd of November is that date that every Doctor Who fan knows. So I just can't help but wonder if maybe there was another reason why he picked that particular date. But there you go. Huh. I have to admit that I I don't know as much as I probably could or should when it comes to, maybe it's a good thing, (laughs) the occult (laughs) and black magic and all that. But I do wonder if 11-23 or the 23rd of November, if there's something there that I'm just missing connection-wise. But maybe it's just kind of a thing that put in there as a a nod to Doctor Who, yeah? Maybe, maybe, yeah. You know, j- just being such a big fan myself, when when I hear that date, it's a meeting, well, what it makes me think of, but maybe I'm alone in that. I don't know. <laughs> Joanna Lumley appears, and we talked quite, quite a bit about her before. She's nothing less than a British national treasure these days. But back then, I think at the time that they made this film, she was a fairly unknown actress. It was before she had her breakout, which I think was probably the um, New Avengers Mm-hmm. But I was kind of um, hunting around seeing what else Joanna Lumley um, has been in. And apparently she appears in The House That Dripped Blood. I don't know how familiar you, you are with that film. Uh, I haven't seen it in a long time. It's something that I will eventually be covering on the show with uh, Dr. Gane Green at some point. So I've been kind of holding off until we get that lined up to, to visit yeah. it again. No, sure. I'll, I'll look forward to um, that. But at the, at the other end of the spectrum, in 2013, she actually had a, a role in The Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, wow. <laughs> which is pretty incredible. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, so I guess if we needed one, that's yet another Martin Scorsese Hammer connection. And of course, as we all know, Martin Scorsese is one of the world's most famous fans of uh, Hammer films. So, Well, and yeah. Marvel movies and Marvel movies. And Marvel movies. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, right. no, 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 no. Well, I'm looking over her, her filmography right now. And yes. 
I think I probably have seen more Joanna Lumley than I really thought that I had. She's yeah. done quite a bit. Now, I know that I haven't seen things like uh, Lady Chatterley versus Fanny Hill. I know that one's not one I've seen yet. I must have missed that one, too. Yeah. yeah. But uh, like she was in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is yes. one of my favorite James Bond films. Oh, excellent. So, yeah, she's done quite yeah. a bit. And still oh, working she, as of a couple of years ago, at least. Oh, she's still going strong as far as I know. So, yeah, she seems to be playing a more, would you say, emotionally mature version of Jessica Van Helsing here? Yeah, I would. Yeah. I absolutely believe it's the same character, but I can also see that she's got a couple of years' experience under her her belt. She does things which I can't really see um, the Stephanie Beecham version doing, particularly the way that she explores Pelham House. And I think this is an interesting point because her character is kind of patronised most of the way through the film. But while the two butch men, you know, Inspector Murray and Torrance, are upstairs being given the runaround by Chin Yang, I think the character's name is, Jessica is the one who is actually exploring and finding out what's really going on in Pelham House. And although she gets herself into horrible trouble, you'll notice that she actually sees that there's a security system, that she's got the presence of mind to st- step over the beam before she goes into the um, cellar. So although these guys have been patronizing her, she's the one who's actually getting it done. I really liked that. Uh, we saw the security system get tripped by uh, the agent at the very beginning yes. of the film. So to see her notice it and bypass it was nice. Uh, she does need a little bit of rescuing there at the end of that sequence where she's in the house. But what I like about that is that even though the men were like, hey, just stay here and, you know, something, you know, you're back from us in an hour, just, you know, whatever. Even though they told her to do that and she clearly doesn't listen, which is great, good for yeah. her, they yeah. don't criticize her for not listening after the fact. Mm. There's not a dressing down moment. And I liked that too. Yeah, that's something that I didn't think about, Derek. That's a That's a good point. That whole scene in the cellar, that's genuinely unnerving. Mm -hmm. The use of slow motion, which once again, um, as far as I know, hasn't been a big Hammer film thing in the past. That's a really nightmarish uh, sequence, really. And I think the slow motion really adds to it. I think so, too. Normally, I'm not a big fan of like artificially slowing things down like that. But in this case, I thought it worked. Yeah, same. And I'm afraid I do have to point out that these vampires are obviously very tactile. And uh, this continues the unfortunate tradition of poor Jessica being inappropriately handled by uh, the undead. Yeah, they get a little handsy, don't they? They get a bit handsy. That's That's the word exactly. Also, talking about interesting effects, they then do that strange solarized kind of effect when the sprinkler system is tripped. I really liked that too. I and I, I maybe that's a seventies thing, you know, to, to use that kind of special effects technology. But it really seemed to work in this case, even though you would probably associate that kind of an effect with maybe like a science fiction picture. In yeah. this case, it worked so well, and it was a good choice by the director and the filmmakers. I think so. I mean, it really kind of sells the idea that the water is actually burning them, that they're not just getting wet, that it's actually um, really, really hurting them. And yeah, I was really surprised to um, see that. I think Alan Gibson is really stretching his wings in this particular film. And it's not 
that they did that because they couldn't do a burn effect. We will see later in the movie that, yeah, they can do some pretty spectacular distressed flesh effects. So it wasn't just trying to avoid that. It was just to give it a different way of communicating. I don't know. It was just, it was really well. I'm starting to babble now at this point. And I think it's because (laughs) I really enjoyed the movie. I get kind of excited and say, yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. There's a nice variety of effects, I suppose. Yeah, nice variety of effects and also um, some of his camera setups and his camera angles as well. Uh, There's one particular shot a little bit later on where you have a character looking through binoculars, I think. In the distance, there's another character approaching them. I think it might be the colonel. But the shot is actually framed under the other actor's arm. So he's kind of looking through the binoculars and then you zoom in underneath and you see the colonel kind of approaching along the path. So it's just interestingly set set up shots like that, which really struck me. It gave the whole thing a kind of layer of class, I think. And some of the things that the director chose to focus on, I think there's, isn't there a moment in the film where Cushing, Van Helsing is, I don't even know what he was doing at this point, but for whatever reason, the camera pans down and just goes to his tapping foot. Like, come on. Let's go. Yes. Time to do this, you know. And it oh, it's yes. just these little moments that he chooses to focus on that again it does give it like an element of class, I feel like. Yeah, sure. And of course while while all this is going on, there's the scene we touched on before between uh Van Helsing and uh Professor Keeley, which we agree is uh is incredibly well and and this is really where the spy fi element comes in where They've created, now let me get this straight, it's a new strain of the Black Death treated with <laughs> radioactive neutrons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> and I'll admit, I hadn't seen this movie in a while. Ever since you and I first started talking about doing these two movies, I've intentionally held off because I wanted Mm. it to be fresh in my mind. I wanted to have a little bit of that wonder. And I got a little bit of that wonder because I'd forgotten about the whole radioactive thing. (laughs) Like, what? what? But that falls right in line with the whole spy-fi, sci-fi element and... We're doing radioactivity with Dracula movie. I don't, but hey, it I works. Just, I was just going to say that, but that's one word I never thought I'd hear in a Hammer Dracula film. But there you go. <laughs> it's even more frightening because those petri dishes look disgusting. There's one that looks oh, like it's yeah. got mashed peas in it or something. It's it's really foul looking. But kind of balancing the sci-fi side of things, you've then got Keeley's um, increasingly disturbing rambling about the thrill of disgust and how nothing is too vile. And it's a great performance and it's actually genuinely disturbing. And I'm kind of relieved when Van Helsing finally cuts him short with a good hard slap. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That was good. It was the way that scene continues to escalate. And then when (laughs) the thug comes in, immediately yeah. switching gears he forced me he forced me to do it <laughs> he threatened me you know freddie jones is a treasure here in this film he, really he completely is and peter cushing really made me think of all the conversations i wish i could have ended with a with <laughs> <laughs> so this movie is giving us like guideposts for our life you know would you go to a deal or slapping yep. somebody to get him off tra- yeah there you go <laughs> everything i need to know about life i learned from the satanic prince of dracula that's 
there's there's um, something else that I've learned as well that um, even being shot in the head doesn't keep Peter Cushing down for too long, does right? It? Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm glad it just grazed him, but still, come oh, on. Too. Peter Cushing, yeah. Van Helsing takes a shot to the head, and he still defeats Dracula at the end. Come on. battered flesh wound. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're bleeding. No, I'm not. Yeah. Uh-huh. Perfect. <laughs> it's nothing. It's nothing. <laughs> so, um... I noticed as well. So, so sorry, Derek. I'm running away with this. No, it's feel, fine. We feel free to um, steer me or give me a good hard slap to shut me up. Hey, I'm having a blast, man. It's all good. Oh, good, good. Something I I noticed when Van Helsing is walking past D.D. Denham's tower block mm-hmm. and he sees the um, plaque outside. Now it mentions that St. Bartolf's Church was built in 1672 and demolished in 1972. And if you remember from AD 1972, Lawrence Van Helsing and Dracula died in 1872. So I'm really starting to think that the writer has a real thing about the number 72. It just keeps recurring, doesn't it? Hmm. You know, now, and again, this is something I know very little about, but now I kind of want to... Uh, do a little bit more research about the numbers of this film, getting some get into some numerology here and see mm. if there is anything to like the eleven twenty three and and the seventy two yeah. and all that. I wonder. I mean, you know, I I am doing what to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I just thought it, it it was amazing that the church was even built, you know, in a year with seventy two in it as well. It just True. Seemed, uh, seemed quite amazing. But the most amazing thing, I think, is that a tower block that size, which I think at the time of filming was one of the tallest in Europe, went up in, what, under two years? I was going to ask about that. I don't know <laughs> how realistic that is. Granted, you've got the power of Dracula behind you, but still, <laughs> come on. I don't I don't know <laughs> if that's possible. I, I wonder if it's like the Return of the Jedi when the Emperor arrives on the new Death Star to, oh. <laughs> uh, to find more ways to motivate the construction crew. So I don't know, maybe Dracula was doing the same thing. <laughs> well, we'll double our efforts, I hope so, Commander, for your sake. <laughs> the Emperor's not as forgiving as I am. The Emperor's coming here? Man, I could go on. I'm going to stop. Uh, <laughs> no idea how many times I watched it as a kid. But yeah, yeah. I mean, if Dracula tells you to work faster, you work faster. It, it obviously worked because that was record time. That yeah. Was, that was amazing. For a building that size. For sure. Now, we're coming to a part in the film which, not for the first time, I was really shocked. And that is the sudden and brutal deaths of Peter Torrance and Colonel Matthews. I mean, okay, they might not have been the most likable characters in the world, but we've got to know them, we're behind them, we've enjoyed their company, and then then this happens. It's bleak. I was really surprised by that, especially since earlier in the film when they're talking about how Porter shut down their department and half the department's been labeled as uh, subversives and they've been arrested, that sort of thing. It it seems to me there'd be a much more efficient way to shut them up. You wouldn't have to... uh, deal with hiding a body at this point if you just say hey they're they're crazy and they're subversive lock them up you know so yeah to see that step taken felt a little drastic and again though it adds to that element of danger to the film i remember when i first saw this film years ago and that happened i was Mm. expecting the inspector to go down too i I really thought okay inspector's next 
I can see maybe with the process of the storytelling, mm-hmm. maybe his character had served its purpose, but yeah, it still it still felt incredibly bleak. Um, it was that real 1970s hard hitting violence, um, which is so so much a part of movie and in that particular genre. If we can be shocked out of our complacency, then I would say the writer and the director are probably doing their um job. But I just didn't enjoy seeing it. I had really got used to that character, and I wanted to see more more of him, I think. Yeah, I liked that group as a unit. I mean, that's the group Mm. that I would want to follow if this turned into a TV show. Yeah. You know, I'd like to see the four of them doing stuff with Cushing doing, yeah. But it just wasn't meant to be, I suppose. And the colonel even gets killed off screen. We don't even see what happens. He's just, he's left as a corpse in a car. I'm really starting to hate these sheepskin wearing snipers. (laughs) by this stage and and isn't jo- joanna lumley's reaction to being shot at just so realistic yeah yeah you really believe she's in that awful situation you know i think she does a does a fantastic job there i know i would probably freak out like that even if not worse <laughs> if, if i found out somebody was shooting at me especially with a silencer not not that you can dodge a bullet or anything but to mm. not even know where it's coming from oh yeah 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 that, i mean you, you know that's the surprising thing about this film, I think, that the really tense scenes don't necessarily have a supernatural element to them. It's kind of real-world threats that are really putting you on edge. You know, you're absolutely right. Yeah, we've got a basement full of vampire women, you know, chained mm. up. Yeah, that's that's bad. And yeah, we've got that whole occult thing happening at the beginning of the film and the ceremony and, you know, the, the killing the rooster and everything else. And, and yeah, yeah, that's bad. But you're right. We're seeing people getting shot in the head. You know, and that has nothing to do with Dracula. It's, yeah, exactly. I mean, he might be directing it, but it's not like a vampire thing. It's just hired thugs doing what hired thugs do when they're hired. Yeah. You know, exactly. you're absolutely right. Maybe that's why I like this movie so much more than maybe most because I like that level as well. I guess it's what I was saying at the beginning about the human characters being the being the real monsters, maybe. Now, I wanted to ask you, do you think it's Peter Cushing's that silver bullet you know i don't know i paid very close attention this time around and and the hands they felt like they could fit they did Mm. seem like of the appropriate age yeah and i honestly wouldn't be surprised if it was Mm. cushing doing it i believe anything that he does on screen is yeah that's him what about you like where where do you fall on it all i can say is i desperately want to believe that it is him yeah we um know that he did his research if he had to be seen performing surgery on on screen and he and he went to great lengths to make it look authentic so part of me really wants to believe that he actually took the time to learn how to do that because you know he's he's props peter he he knows Mm -hmm. how to use props how to how to act with his hands on the other hand, it's highly specialized work, maybe. But um, yeah, I would really like to believe it was him. And that scene is my favorite scene in this entire thing. Mm. Him taking out the little silver cross, melting yes. it down, turning yeah. it into a silver bullet. There's yeah. just something about that whole sequence that I love. That's what brings me to this film. And when that scene played again this morning when I was watching it today, mm. yeah, I was... Let's go. Let's do it. I'm in, man. Let's go. I'm, I'm yeah. with you, Peter. I'm with you, Van Helsing. Let's go. And it always bums me out when it doesn't work, <laughs> that he gets attacked before he can fire the trigger, you know? I know. But um, it's, it's done with such cold but precise 
efficiency. Mm-hmm. And it's captivating. It really, really is. I've had people point out to me that I probably shouldn't get as excited as I do about that scene because once he melts the cross down into sil- into a liquid state to turn into a bullet, mm-hmm. it's no longer a cross, so it doesn't have its efficacy anymore, but I don't no. care. I don't care. I it don't doesn't matter. <laughs> I don't care. It's <laughs> still <okay>. cool. <laughs> it's, it is so cool. So please tell me, how cool did you think Christopher Lee's accent was? <laughs> was that really him or was it dubbed by somebody <laughs> else? I can't tell. Well, I mean, I can tell. It doesn't sound like anything like him at all, but it could very well have been him. I've heard him do other accents, so. Well, of course, he, he could speak, what was it, six different languages? Right. I, I would like to think that it was him, if indeed it was him. Not, not only is he doing the accent, but he, he raises the timbre of his voice as well. So, and I was, I was watching, I was watching so close because, (laughs) well, you know, I've been doing sound work for some films these days and all that. So Mm. I'm, I'm really kind of keying into sound effects and dubbing and that sort of thing. And I was watching and what we could see of Lee, which is admittedly more than I think. More than they anticipated. The mouth movement did match the dialogue pretty spot on. So it didn't feel like an overdub, but, you know. I really, really hope it wasn't an overdub because when you think about it, this would probably be the longest conversation that any Van Helsing has ever had face-to-face with Dracula. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'd like to think it was actually happening. With the exception of the recent BBC series, yes, (laughs) uh, you're absolutely right. It's the longest Van Helsing has spoken with a Dracula. And, you know, I like that too. I like the back and forth and I feel like... Mm. You know, he knew. He's like, so you really can't let me get out of here, can you, Dracula? What are you going to do with me now? You know, he's like, ah, you know, I know what you're going to do and it's not good for me, but I know it. I called you on it. Just, I just love Cushing when he gets to do scenes like, like yes. that because he's so, he's so casual that you're thinking just how much his mind must be racing. But mm-hmm. he's just keeping his expression so neutral and he's polite. When he pulls the books off the desk, he actually apologizes to the person who's about to murder him. He's, yeah. he's, I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> Obviously, it's of no surprise to anyone that D.D. Denim is actually Dracula. Then it goes a little bit off the rails for, for me, I have to say, and maybe you can help me justify this. I'm really annoyed. I'm really peeved at how easily subdued Van Helsing is by two old men. And, <laughs> and, and I, was, I was thinking about this and I was thinking, OK, well, maybe I can paper it over by saying that they're in Dracula's thrall. And as often happens with his slaves, perhaps Dracula's given them some extra ability, or maybe it shouldn't bother me so much. I wanted this Van Helsing to have a little bit more, uh, and not that he's lacking, don't get me wrong, but maybe he doesn't have the same vigor that hmm. 58's Dracula had. Yeah. And, and that's fine. I mean, it's a different character altogether. He's 60 years old now. So, yeah, of course, yeah, he's going to yeah. be slowed down a little bit. But, mm. yeah, I wanted him to have a little bit more pushback, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, even if one of them was holding a gun on him, I would have bought the scene a lot better. But, you know, I'm nitpicking. It's just a tiny thing. Yeah. So then we discovered that Dracula's master plan <laughs> is basically an elaborate suicide attempt. Have I got that right? Yeah. And it's yeah. it's something that I had never considered or even thought 
when I first saw this film years ago. The first time I saw mm-hmm. this uh, it was at the tail end of a three or four night marathon of watching all those these movies back to back on VHS. Wow. And wow. that Dracula was tired and just wants to end it all and selfishly take everybody out with him. Didn't even occur to me as something Dracula would ever do. Yeah. Comes completely out of the blue. I mean, it kind of makes sense, I suppose. They justify it in the film, but... It's got an interesting parallel with how Lee himself must have been feeling. Oh, sure. I mean, he, he, he wanted to end his existence as far as being him as Dracula was concerned. Oh, yeah, he was done. Uh, oh, he was, he was absolutely done. I mean, I think I, I counted he'd played Dracula, not just in Hammer, but he'd played Dracula something like 10 times and very, very similar characters in, in other films. It's in your book, actually. You've got a little infographic of how many times Lee played Dracula, so many times for Hammer, uh, once for um, that one filmmaker whose name I can't remember. Chase Franco? Yeah, yeah. Once for Franco yes, and then yeah. one more time yeah. he had the cameo and then... Uh, Yes. Like Dracula and Son, maybe, or something? Yeah. yeah so I a mean, number of times he played Dracula. Yeah. And he was done. Yeah, he was absolutely done. And, you know, not 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 only Dracula in name, but he was playing similar characters in, in other films. And I, I just wanted to give a shout out to maybe the weirdest Christopher Lee vampire appearance I've ever ever seen. Okay. Have you ever seen a movie called The Magic Christian? You know, it's been on my list of something to track down. I have not seen it. Oh, Derek, <laughs> if you're in the right mood and it would be hard to even describe what that mood is without the help of certain substances, I think, <laughs> you, might, I think you might really enjoy it. But Lee is, is great in it. He's playing a character which is credited as the ship's vampire. Okay. I'll just leave it there probably, but hopefully one day you'll, um, you'll be able to see it. I am now even more intrigued. Good, so good. Well, Lee's one of those guys, too, like Cushing. You know, I'll watch him in anything. I'll listen to him speak in anything. He's saying, yeah. With Cushing, you feel like somebody's telling you the best bedtime story ever. With Lee, I feel like if you're not listening to him, he's going to come get you later. (laughs) So (laughs) maybe I shouldn't say this, but living in New Zealand, I know people who are um, involved in the Weta Workshop. Oh, okay, yeah. They had been at social situations with Christopher Lee when he was here filming. And he would do just that. If he, was tell- if he was telling a story around the table and for whatever reason someone wasn't listening, apparently Lee would actually point at that person until they returned their attention to him. And then he'd get on with the story. So you were more right than you realized. There. That's amazing. <laughs> I love that. Okay. Uh, yeah, but why why anyone would would lose their concentration is beyond me. But, oh yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, what what a treat it must have been to just kind of be around these these legends Absolutely. and to hear their stories. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So we end up at Pelham House as we always knew that we would. Mm-hmm. Inspector Murray has once again a very nasty, unglamorous fight. 70s style with the thug in the mm-hmm. control room after asking him if he was open to any deals. <laughs> um, so we we get a really spectacular blaze. This is one thing where Hammer never really fell down. If something is catching fire at the climax of a film, you, you really believe there's serious damage being done here. And this fire, this explosion, 
goes between floors, which I didn't remember that. I I knew that the fire does spread, but I didn't remember when I watched it this morning that, oh, when that device explodes, it actually blows out part of the ceiling underneath. And, oh, that's where the ritual is happening. So, yeah, yeah, that was pretty cool, too. The poor guy who gets exposed to the Black Death. Oh, Oh. ooh. Oh, that's oh, that's nasty. Oh man, and there's this weird—not necessarily a cat and mouse thing—but there's this weird kind of game of tag, where the guy gets real close to Van Helsing and he jerks away, and he kind of wanders I, around the room some more, and his hand almost touches, and he whips his hand away. It suspense, man. I, I actually jumped when you almost touched Cushing's hand. I mean, I I I know that that happens, but it's just so close. He right? Just snatches his hand away. Oh boy. Absolutely awful. Um, <laughs> and as if that's not enough, he gets set on fire too. So, you know, <laughs> actually, that, that, that's that's really well done as well. When yeah, <laughs> Murray runs back and he sees this guy stumbling around inside this burning room. That's that's really grim. And <laughs> <laughs> we shouldn't be laughing. <laughs> no, we shouldn't. I mean, it, it's it's we're enjoying this this whole thing. I it's it's terrible. That poor guy. I mean. I granted he put himself there no you guys probably shouldn't have been working on the black plague and uh, well you know but still that poor guy maybe if he'd just taken a moment to think about what he was doing then you know none of this needed to happen right what i really like about this is that as murray runs in to rescue jessica he actually for a brief moment is face to face with count dracula Mm -hmm. so all the things that he's taken on trust from Lorimer Van's housing up to that point, he's now seeing for himself. His faith in him is being confirmed. And it's a really brief, fleeting second, but I thought, yeah, that kind of rounds off Murray's story as well. Yeah, that if he's not for joining Van Helsing's secret group of vampire fighters after this, then, you know, (laughs) that's it. That's the initiation right there. It absolutely is just for that brief moment to be face to face with this awesome figure that he's been hearing about for all this time. Unfortunately, this awesome figure just tends to kind of be standing there while his plans are falling apart and all his toys are being taken away from him. Maybe he's frightened by the fire. I don't know. So he and Van Helsing have what looks like the start of a promising tussle. You've got Cushing turning the tables on him, Western saloon style. And there's a little bit of a tussle, but then he throws the chair through through the window and escapes in, into the night, which of course any of us would do. Sure. You talk about Dracula just kind of standing there. When I talk about this film with my friends, most of them understand that I love this movie I mean, despite any issues there may be, I love this film. There is somebody who's been on the show. um, I'm going to call her out, Dominique. Uh, (laughs) She's not a big fan of this film. And what she tells me, and and I understand, is that Christopher Lee looks miserable in this movie, that he looks like he's not having a good time at all. And that kind of translates to whether or not she enjoys the movie that kind of influences her there. I think during this scene, she's right. Mm. He's just kind of standing there. He does seem kind of miserable. And and maybe it is acting. Maybe it is we're seeing Dracula see his plans go up in smoke, literally. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, he does just kind of look like he's over it. And I'm, I'm done. I've been turning this one over in my head because I'm pathologically unable to really criticize these films. I mean, I do, but I don't enjoy having to criticize right. them. Right. 
I, I was turning it around in, in my head and I was thinking, okay, well, the whole point of this film is that Dracula has a death wish. And maybe in some tiny part of his brain, he's thinking, okay, well, I may not be able to take the whole world down with me, but maybe I'm still going to meet my end when all this is over. So maybe there's a certain resignation. I, I know that I'm reaching desperately, Derek, but I thought, yeah, maybe there's just some part of the character that is resigned. When he follows Van Helsing <laughs> out into the night, now this is the bit that really bothers me, and I don't want to mention it, but I'm going to. He's kind of wandering around in the woods like, any normal person would. And in fact, Van Helsing actually has to shout <laughs> shout out his position so that Dracula would will find him. I just wish that there was a little bit of a hint of preternatural vision, night vision, or supernatural hearing. I just wish there was something hinted at to give Dracula a little bit more of a sense of being a threat in this particular scene. He's the prince of freaking darkness. Yeah. And yeah, he's yeah. just kind of stumbling through the woods. And, he's uh, stumbling through the woods. Yeah. It, it really needed a little bit more oomph, I think. Like, yeah. Right? I'm not blaming Christopher Lee for this. In fact, obviously by, by this stage, the actor must have been bored out of his skull and maybe actively hostile to, towards having to play the part. However, and just speaking for myself here, not once do I fail to be taken in by Christopher Lee. You know, even in this film, in his scenes, there's never any vestige of humanity or warmth or indication that there's an actor going through the motions. When you look at his Dracula, when you look into those eyes, you believe it. He's a demon. If he gets hold of you, you're finished. Mm -hmm. And... Even in this film, I've never, ever doubted that. If I'm pointing blame anywhere, maybe the script, maybe the direction. Yeah, it's not Lee's fault. The Hawthorne bush. Let's, let's talk about the Hawthorne bush. I think yes, it's, I think it does kind of all kind of add up. You know, there's this guy wandering around in the woods. Mm -hmm. Looks like he needs to be called over to Cushing as opposed to being able to see him <laughs> because he's the prince of freaking darkness, you know? <laughs> yes, exactly. You yep. know? And then the Hawthorn bush happens, and hmm. even though he kind of touches it and he recoils from it, he still is trying to force his way through it. And yeah, it just—I don't feel like it's a very dignified end for what was going to be the last of the basically yeah. Christopher Lee Dracula films. I, I wanted yeah. a bigger ending there, and the ultimate. Death blow, you know, the stake and then watching yes. his body dissolve and all that. That was one of the coolest dissolves that Lee's been involved with. It was a great oh, breakdown. Really, really is. Yeah. But the Hawthorne thing just, I wanted a little bit more. I don't know what I would have wanted, but I wanted a little bit more. I can't disagree with you. It's it's almost as if no one told Dracula that he was allergic to Hawthorne. Right. <laughs> you know? He, but I will say the ripping and tearing sound effects actually make me wince. Oh, the mean, it sounds great. I mean, you're I, talking to a I, sound guy. It sounded awesome. Oh, God, yes. I completely get that it's not especially dignified, but it's making me, ooh, it's making me cringe. Mm -hmm. And I will say that I love, I love the fact that when he finally tumbles free, he's wearing a crown of thorns. 
I thought that same thing too. They don't yeah. point it out. They don't linger on it, but it really exactly. looks like it's been draped around his head and just yeah. the right. Oh, it's yeah. so good. It's quite subtle. And as you say, they don't make a big thing about it, but I think that's a nice touch. Okay. It's not the best death he's ever had, but that is really heavy duty symbolism there. And I like it. And as you say, something that a lot of people seem to overlook is that it's not the bush that finishes him off. It's Van Helsing with the stake. And that disintegration, particularly when he reaches the skeletal form and you've got the rib cage and everything kind of collapsing, that's really icky. That's really well done, I thought. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very, very well done. I was sort of wondering, as I mentioned, this whole film is about Dracula wanting to end it all. And I just wondered, you know, as an alternative ending, stick with me. This might be an awful idea, but as an alternative ending, I just imagined what would happen if maybe Dracula sees that Pelham House is in flames, that Jessica's been spirited away, that his four horsemen, the apocalypse, are dead. And instead of mindlessly pursuing Van Helsing, just imagine if the two of them have a brief exchange, a brief conversation, and then Dracula, instead of carrying out his vendetta, instead he just turns around and he walks into the flames and he accepts his final death that way. I just thought, yeah, that would just give things a little bit more of a twist because all the way through this film has been playing by a different rule book and we've really, really enjoyed that. But the fact that he just mindlessly pursues Van Helsing and gets trapped and killed like a not particularly cunning animal. Yeah, it might have been nice if they could have done something just a little bit different. I like that a lot because it would give it a little bit more of a dignified end for a film series, basically a franchise that he's noping out of he's completely done at this point i don't think he had any intention of coming back for another hammer dracula film after this so you know as an actor as a performer he would have known yeah that would have given it a more solemn satisfactory ending for sure you wouldn't get that cool breakdown that cool dissolve but still that is exactly what i was going to say a huge part of the reason why i watch these movies is that i just love i love mm-hmm. the sure. um it's one of the biggest draws for for me but um you know in, in terms of lee never coming back and in terms of the count's plan always being to end his existence i just thought you know pelham house becoming his gigantic funeral pyre might have been an overall better tr- dramatic ending but um That's not to say that I don't love this film, because I I absolutely do. And I left it feeling completely satisfied. Sure. And a little bit unnerved, because as as we've said, Derek, it keeps doing things that you don't expect. It keeps providing shocks that aren't supernatural shocks. Uh, It offs characters that you don't expect to go so abruptly. It's a really satisfying watch, I think. I think so, too. I mean, even though the ending leaves me a little uh, unfulfilled. The rest of the movie more than makes up for it. You've got some great Inspector Murray moments. You've got Jessica Van Helsing doing what she does. This movie delivers on so many levels, not just the vampire level, you know, like Mm. we've been talking about. It's got the spy fi element, the the spy stuff. And hey, there's radiation involved. And, you know, (laughs) there's all these little elements here and there that just give you much more than any other Dracula film Hammer's ever done. Definitely. And I think the biggest accolade that I could give the film is that it 
desperately, it leaves me desperately wanting to see more of Lorimer, Inspector Murray, and Jessica. Yes. I would love to see more of that. Oh, man, I'd love to see more of that. (laughs) (laughs) If we haven't made it clear yet, listeners, Al and I both really enjoy this movie. And (laughs) even if you're predisposed to dislike it, whether you've seen it before and you just didn't like it or you've heard terrible things, I hope that Al and I have maybe tweaked it enough to, or tweaked your interest enough to send you looking out for that Blu-ray or or streaming it or, or watching it. I'm telling you, man, it's a good film. I really enjoy it. It's a good time. Same. At the end of the day, everybody, it's Cushing and Lee. Come on. You can't go wrong with Cushing and Lee. doesn't yeah. matter. I suppose I probably ought to finally get around to watching one more time just for that. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, Al, this has been a blast. Way too long to make this happen. Let's not wait as long before the next time I have you back on the show. Well, heck, you're in the future. You could probably see it happening sooner than I can. I, I can definitely see it happening. Derek, it is always a pleasure. It's been so much fun. Um, I've enjoyed talking about this film as much as I enjoyed watching it. I think I, I think I can easily say that. Thank you for having me back. Thank you for having me. And I just want to say thank you so much for MKR. You're a bastion of inclusiveness and positivity in fandom. And that's really important. And not just that, but you provide an invaluable voice for fans and creators, as I was saying, worldwide. You you probably don't realize yourself just how much that means to everyone. But from all of us, thank you. Thank you. And I don't know how else to follow that up. So (laughs) sorry. (laughs) No, no, I just... I'm learning to get better about accepting compliments. So thank you so much for being part of the Monster Kid Radio thing. Al, really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, Derek. Thank you. InfoGothic, an unauthorized graphic guide to Hammer Horror. I'm telling you, it will be the best $25.99 that you spend when it comes to Hammer and Infographics. Trust me. Trust me. It's a great book. When the book was first released back in 2018, I did whip up a quick little YouTube video highlighting some of the artwork, so I'll make sure that YouTube is embedded in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. Al, we are not waiting over a year for another movie. Unfortunately, there's not another film in this series with the Kush and the Lee together, but I'm sure you and I can find something to talk about. Thanks again, Al, and thanks for inspiring the satanic rites of January. They come from an incredible planet of apes. They survived a war beneath the planet of apes. Now it's Earth 1973, and you're in for a surprise. Are they friendly visitors or invaders from the future? Why does the president's advisor want them shot? What is baby Milo's incredible secret? All the surprising answers are an escape from the planet of the apes. All new from 20th Century Fox, rated G all ages. Escape from the planet of the apes. What happens when Dracula has a son? What happens is one of the zaniest, funniest, craziest films of the year. 
Christopher Lee is back in Dracula and Sons. It's all you ever wanted to know about vampires, but were afraid to ask. Don't miss the boys from Transylvania. Dracula and Sons. It will bite you in the funny bottom. Rated AB positive, RH negative, and PG. Vampires. Werewolves. Zombies. Yes, these things are real. But fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. Okay, here we are at the end of the show. Thanks for listening. Make sure you follow us on Facebook. Give us a like, join the group, maybe follow me on Twitter. That way you can retweet the posts and share the Twitters and spread the word through social media and just let people know about your favorite Derek M. Cook podcast. Uh, The more the merrier, of course. You know, we are trying to get to 2,000 likes on Facebook. So please, if you are a Facebook user, please consider giving us a like over there. You know, a lot of the reviews have slowed down a little bit. And I haven't mentioned it lately, but reviews do help podcasts find new listeners. So if you haven't already done so, please consider leaving us an honest review over at Apple iTunes or wherever it is you download your podcasts. MonsterKidRadio.net is where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. Our contact information is over there. Our email address is MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. And our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. On our website, I'll also make sure there's a link to the Classic Horror Film Board because that's where you can nominate your favorite podcasts, books, movies, commentary, interviews, directors, whatever for the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards this year. Nominations are open right now, and I can't wait to see what makes the ballot, because the ballot really is just a great checklist of all the amazing monster stuff that happened in the previous year. What David Colton does with that is just Godzilla's work. Next week on the show, we're going to have another movie with a satanic bent because, yeah, it's still the satanic rites of January. And we're going to have Frank Schildner on the show. Frank is an author and, again, friend of the show. He's been on quite a bit. And we're going to be talking about one of his favorite movies. It's another Hammer film. It's The Devil Rides Out. Rex, do you believe in evil? As an idea. Do you believe in the power of darkness? As a superstition. Now, there you are wrong. The power of darkness is more than just a superstition. It is a living force which can be tapped at any given moment of the night. Why? On one night of one year, should these people live in mortal fear? Christopher Lee as de Richelieu, who knows he must fight the devil's power to the death. Eyes, eyes, once filled with love, 
are consumed with fear. For Tanith is now promised to the devil. Listen carefully to what I say. This is Makata, the devil's chief disciple. Your will is leaving you, slipping away. The Devil's Bride, from bestseller author Dennis Wheatley's The Devil Rides Out, fills the screen with a special kind of visual terror. On your feet quickly! Back to back! Join hands! You will hear his evil. Also next week, we're going to have another surf band on the show. Operation Octopus will be joining us with a song off their album, El Calavera. And between now and then, I'll make sure that I learn how to pronounce that correctly. Because they are an Italian band and... I probably just butchered the Italian language. So if nothing else, maybe come back next week to see if I figured out how to speak Italian for a second. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0. Unported license. Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories is copyright Jerry Green, 2020. And the song Escape from Havana is copyright House of Man. 2020. They gave us permission to play this song on the show. Go check them out at houseofman.bandcamp.com and check out the album It Came From The Basement. 15 tracks, $7 for the digital album. That's a heck of a deal. Go support them because they support us. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. See, that's kind of Italian. I should be able to figure it out by then. Yeah. <laughs>